and welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Clamble. I'm certainly glad you're with us. Hey, this has been a fantastic environment for us, by the way. I mean, there's so much happening. I, I continue to say I have never been busier because there's so many fronts to look at. I've got to look at what's happening, you know, with China. I've got to obviously look at what's happening with sanctions and Ukraine. I've got to look at what's happening on the interest rate fronts, which we'll do later on in the program. Uh, I look at what's obviously happening again on equities. Everywhere you look, there's something happening. And I'll tell you, if you don't pay attention, I think you could be in trouble. That's one of my thesis is, yeah, when you get inflation, it hits the lower end of income scale. It's rising up. We're into the middle class now being impacted. So if you don't think it's got something to do with you, well, just give it a little bit. It's going to. That's why we deal with this kind of stuff on Money Talks. And I'm looking forward to chatting with Jeff Olin. He's Vision Capital. Here's the thing. They've never had a losing calendar year. It didn't matter what stuff was thrown at them. They haven't. Well, is this the first? I mean, what happens when interest rates explode higher? What happens to real estate? I think a lot of people will be surprised what the historical track record is in a rising interest rate environment. And there's different types of real estate. We'll get to all of that with Jeff Olin. I'm also going to be talking with Ozzy about the change of what's happened in real estate. Because remember, they're on the front line of interest rates. When you raise interest rates, no sector got hit sooner It'll certainly ripple through the rest of the economy, but real estate was upfront about the impact of rising interest rates. Uh, Mike Levy and I will talk more about the interest rates and what it means to other investments. Are interest rates high enough to finally make a difference in terms of what you're choosing to do with your money? Of course, Victor Dare will be with me. I've also got a great Goofy Award great goofy award. I'm sure I'll get in trouble for it with some people. You can't please everyone, and I certainly never do. Uh, also got a shocking stat for you, and of course, a quote of the week. All of that coming your way. But first, you know, one of the most noteworthy characteristics, I think, of the last several years has been the growing disenchantment with experts. I mean, it's greatly troubling to many experts themselves, and me, by the way. I count myself in this group who think that government policy should be based on facts and research, not the emotions or the polling of the day. But what's not widely acknowledged is why so many of us have come to distrust people who claim an expertise by virtue of the letters after their name, or maybe that's something that the media said. What's interesting is that there's no accepted definition, by the way, of an expert. But back to the disillusionment. What's not acknowledged is that way too many times it's been well-earned. Come on, in the world of finance, we're dealing with these record high or, or moving, I meant, fast moving interest rates. Well, the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve got the inflation story dead wrong. This time last year, they're talking about, oh, inflation's transitory. Well, clearly it's not. And they've got hundreds of PhDs on that forecasting model. They got it wrong. Not even close. Uh, where were the experts wading in on the undoable and dangerous no fossil fuel mantra that's left the European Union at the mercy of Russia? Cost Canada tens of billions. And there was clearly no cost-benefit analysis done unless the goal was to have energy shortages in Europe while financing Vladimir Putin's army. That is unless the goal also was to implement policies that would push gas, diesel, and jet fuel prices to record highs while increasing the cost of nitrogen-based fertilizer. Come on, where were the experts blowing the whistle on those kind of proposals? Oh my gosh, I think of the divestiture movement at university faculties. My gosh, their goal was to restrict the capital available for oil and gas production. They never showed a hint that they understood the consequences. I mean, the simplicity and outright ignorance of their demands was breathtaking. And it does play a major part, along with the Russian sanctions, in today's energy shortages. 
Arguably, the biggest hit came to the role of experts during the pandemic. Our health experts purported a level of expertise that was unwarranted. That was the problem. Not that they got it wrong, and some are admitting this now. It was they pretended there was certainty while squelching any questions and challenges. My gosh, they aggressively did that. Same thing on you know the whole climate file, though. There was no questioning of the government and the establishment's view. And I think that's the foundation of growing distrust of experts. Certainly plays a big part. And let me reiterate, I think the loss of credibility comes at a cost. There are people whose research, practical experience, and broad understanding can positively inform public policy and decisions. But we don't need people who are closed-minded or committed to an ideology. No, first and foremost, we need experts or feature experts who have the public interest in mind and not influenced by political considerations. I suspect there's a growing number of people, and the polls bear this out, think that political influence on some experts' opinions and recommendation is the problem. I mean, to some degree, I'm st- we're still seeing it in the energy file, despite the evidence mounting. Still got people out there doubling down on what the problems were that created the mess in the first place. Boy, the one that comes to mind is the no nuclear charge. And that was led by many proclaimed experts whose commit first, commitment first and foremost was to a green ideology. Thankfully, that's changing. We got other people stepping up. So what does this leave us? All expert opinion that claims certainty while squelching a questions and debate should be greeted with overwhelming skepticism. In investment, finance, economics, I encourage you, I encourage you to look at the track record. It doesn't guarantee they'll get it right in the future, but it's a good start. A legitimate expert understands that there's no certainty and understands that risk management is essential. That's where real expertise lives. I mean, the lack of humility we see in so many areas, whether it's investment, that'll cost you a lot of money. In other places, it's even more dangerous, even deadly. But the onus is on us personally, no matter who's talking. And I'm including myself in that. When I say something, we can't be intellectually lazy and dispense with critical thinking skills. Unfortunately, I think we have in a lot of areas, as have our so-called experts, and we're living the consequences. As I say, we've got a great show planned for you. I've got Andrew Rulin, Integrated Wealth Management. He's got a webinar that starts right after the show. Uh, as I say, though, stay tuned for the goofy, the shocking stat, Victor Adair. The list is a long one. And in the meantime, let me give you a reminder. Coming up September 29th this week, I think it's at 630 Mindset Wealth is bringing me up to the Courtney Comox area, the Stan Hagen Theater. So if you're anywhere in that area, I hope you join us. Uh, if you're a Mindset client, it's admissions are free, but we invite a donation. That'll get you in. Donation to Special Olympics, and I appreciate the support of Mindset Wealth for that, and we can support Special Olympics. And I promise I'll be good. Okay, that may be one of those certainty promises that really I can't, uh, I can't really make, but I hope you do join me. I'd look forward to seeing you there. Let's talk to your portfolios for a few minutes. I've invited Andrew Rulin, Integrated Wealth Management, to join me because why? Well, he's doing a seminar, a webinar rather, right after the show here. You want to make sure you can attend. And you can do that, by the way, by simply going to mikesmoneytalks.ca. So if you're listening to this on a Saturday morning, it starts at 11 o'clock specific, noon, Mountain time. So again, keep that in mind. That's this uh, today. 
as you hear this broadcast. But if you are not listening to this on Saturday, any other time, still go to that. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Click on that, the Investor Survival Guide, Minimizing Losses and Optimizing Recovery. That, uh, you know, the webinar there. Why? Because then when you register, you'll get to see it again, that you'll get the replay of it. So you get that automatically. So it doesn't really matter when you are listening to this. You can still take advantage of it. Andrew Rulin, as I said, joins me now. Andrew, thanks for taking time. My pleasure. Good to talk to you, Mike. Well, let's start with the environment that people are operating in. I think the word volatility may be a safe one, (laughs) you know, and I think caution is another one. Yes, absolutely. I would say that's in many ways the understatement of the of the year so far. It's it's a very difficult environment and we we don't think that it's necessarily going to get easy anytime soon. And a big part of what we're going to talk about is is really focused on investor behavior. And and that's a really critical component. We'll talk, you know, about a bunch of other things and you know, maybe we can touch on those in a moment, but Right now is is a critical time to not give in to your uh, to your inner demons, shall we say? Yeah, I would say. I mean, emotion does not help. We see that reflected in the market too often. I've certainly learned that lesson the hard way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look at the change in interest rates. Uh, look at the change, uh, you know, the inflationary environment and the volatility. All of those kinds of things, which you know, sort of beg an emotional response. But that is certainly not the way to go forward. Absolutely. I mean, the fact is right now, it kind of feels like uh, all of the forces are conspiring against us, right? You just mentioned, you know, the the equity market volatility, rising interest rates and inflation. And when that starts to happen, or and when that continues happening, like it has been for basically the entire year to date, uh, people can get a little bit overwhelmed or very overwhelmed. And, you know, fear starts to take over. And, And we know that when when we start to to act based on fear, we're we're really we're really behaving, I guess, really with our reptilian brain as opposed to our uh, prefrontal cortex, where our executive functions are. And it's it's easy to say that and to to understand what what's going on when you're outside of the bubble. But if you're inside of that bubble in your own head, you can't tell that you're in the bubble, and you think that you are thinking rationally, but you're really just kind of feeling. Okay, let's let's talk about a couple of things here. Um, first off, you know, I talked earlier to Michael Levy. I said for the first time in an age, you know, interest rates provide at least on the shorter term. That's where you see the highest rates. At least some competition for the equity markets. As I said to him, like who wanted a half a percent or something in a savings account, but now you maybe can get four percent, four and a half percent. But long term, I think that you know that's not a long term strategy. It may be a strategy to get through this uh, period of uncertainty. Yeah, and one of the things that, that we're actually going to address is is the fact that we want to make sure that, that people aren't doing something that's going to handicap them for the long term just to get some short-term relief from the temporary volatility that we have, right? We just kind of want the pain to stop, so we want to take a painkiller, so to speak. And so for, for some people, they they look to to go to the, the kind of the GIC market. We're actually going to, to talk a little bit about that and, and how that affects their long-term returns. Uh, but of course, you know, the saying is that it, it's always darkest right before the dawn. And uh, a lot of people are, are, are struggling with that right now because it's been a long, long dark night, shall we say, in, in equity markets. And, and frankly, there are a lot of legitimate things to be concerned about. But we're also going to address how 
that psychology that is affecting investors uh, is actually something which is creating opportunity. And so that's the, the, the crux of, uh, of, an, of solid investor behavior, shall we say. And, you know, we don't always talk about investor behavior or investor psychology enough, I think, uh, because we're, we often get caught up in, in the minutia of, you know, um, how much cash do we have? You know, what's our asset allocation? You know, what's the timing of when we're going to do things? We get caught up in the tactics as opposed to focusing on the big picture, longer term strategy. And, and, and essentially choosing the behaviors, the financial behaviors or the investor behaviors that are most accretive to your long term uh, best interests. Yeah, one more thing quickly, because I know obviously you're doing the seminar here, you know, in a short period of time, but uh, there's always, you know, the kind of thing, and I appreciate, and I'm the one who, who talks about it, is that you get to these periods where there's some, uh, you know, uh, so there's been a cautious period here, but I can tell you, my radar is up, also up for opportunity because, you know, for example, the US dollar has been an incredible opportunity, you know, during this environment. Uh, and I might be keen on other sectors, et cetera. How about that? I mean, am I nuts? I mean, there always seems to be, you know, some sort of bull market, at least to be looking out for, you know, as we approach the markets. Yeah, there's always a bull market somewhere. And, you know, you're talking about currency. And uh, first of all, and currency has certainly been one of the things that has actually buffered the downside for our clients over the course of especially this year because of the, the relative strength of the U.S. dollar and, and the Canadian dollar weakness. So that has been a, a good thing for sure. But of course, there's also the, the fact that the opportunities are created in assets that are denominated in U.S. dollars that might be outside of, say, traditional stocks, like the kind of the broad equity markets. So we've been focusing for the last year and a half, really, on, on adding in uh, what we call our core and explore strategy, which is really kind of a focus on the commodity super cycle. And that's actually the part of our portfolios which has been doing the best by far for uh, for clients and it's 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 really helped offset a lot of the other stuff but yes there's always a bull market somewhere and the the key thing is is keeping your head about you and keeping some cash on hand which is what our our portfolio managers do on an ongoing basis so that when opportunity strikes you or opportunity presents itself you don't have to sell something else uh, that's down in order to take advantage of it it's because you have the discipline to harvest some gains elsewhere while things were high and patiently wait on cash as a tactical asset. Well, people can get more detail, obviously, by uh, registering for the webinar. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, by the way. You can register there if you're listening to this uh, post uh, what I say, 11 o'clock Pacific or noon Mountain doesn't make any difference. Still register. You'll get uh, access to the full webinar. Uh, so it doesn't really matter what time you're doing it. I invite you to do that. Andrew, thanks for finding time. Obviously busy today. Uh, very busy, but uh, always have, uh, have time for, for money talks. Thanks, Mike. Great stuff. Time now for the quote of the week. And for it, I'm going to go to the best communicator on economic issues I've ever come across, Stanford economist Thomas Sowell. If you're not familiar with his work, well, Dr. Sowell was born in South Carolina, brought up in poverty in Harlem, went on to author, what, I think 51 books, received a National Humanities Medal for Innovative Scholarship, which incorporates history, economics, and political science. This is a brief quote, but I think it sums up the environment we're operating in. 
and I think it's either misunderstood or never acknowledged, he states in quotes, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And that's exactly what's happening when it comes to central bank policy. Should they raise interest rates in order to reduce demand and fight inflation? But if they do, remember, government tax receipts will go down in an era of record government debt. If they do, then you're risking a slowing economy and higher levels of unemployment. On the other side, the trade-off is if they don't, then you're looking at inflation, I think, going up more significantly. At least they'll feel they're not in control anymore. So do a few, uh, we've always said is there's caught between a rock and a hard place. That's what Sowell's talking about. My point, no easy choices, no right answers, only, as Dr. Sowell says, trade-offs. Of course, the big financial news this week was the Federal Reserve going up three quarters of a percent. Uh, again, third time in a row, they've jumped the rates. And remember back in June, Jerome Powell, head of the Federal Reserve, said, hey, this is really unusual. I don't expect to be doing this very often. Well, three in a row. It's, and he made a significant statement, you know, and I'm going to bring Michael Levy in to talk about that. Mike, I think he left no doubt which side of uh, the debate he's sort of resolved, and that is, he doesn't look like he's backing off higher rates anytime soon. No, it sure doesn't, Mike. And in July, he came. Now, think about July, August, September, two months ago, plus a little bit, he was saying that there was still a chance of a soft landing. So this has been a 180 for him. And just, um, you know, after listening to uh, parts of his press conference and uh, uh, listening to him on the seriousness of raising rates to quell inflation. I, I just want to read one or two things he said. I mean, it's just uh, absolutely jarring, actually, Mike. Uh, he said, uh, the Fed is trying to tell us there will be a hard landing. There's no other way. Well, you and I just said that. Powell said, I wish there was a painless way to do that. There isn't. The chances of a soft landing are likely to diminish to the extent that policy needs to be more restrictive. Read that, raising rates more, or restrictive for longer. And he said, uh, or, or, or Powell has delivered, and markets got a pessimistic message. It isn't clear that it is pessimistic enough. And that's the part that bothers me, Mike. Well, it's interesting. I just did the quote of the week, Thomas Sowell saying, hey, look out. There's no, there's no easy outs here. There's only trade-offs. And the trade-off is a tough one. Raise interest rates to the degree that you've uh, killed the economy, not killed the economy, but you certainly slowed it down, you know, that you're in a recession, that you've caused higher employment. But if you don't do it, hey, look out on that side uh, for inflation to continue to run. But let me just come to this, Mike, and just talk about uh, what it means for investors. Because really, for the first time in a number of years, as an investor, I can make a serious choice. I mean, who the heck wanted their money in a savings account when it was paying you half a percent, you know, or some such thing. And it was killing people who were savers. We rarely talked about that. We always talked about the borrowing side. Well, we're back. You know, there you can get a, a darn good rate. You look at some of those uh, two years and right up to the 10-year. You know, you know, I saw the two-year note this week well above 4%. You know, hey, that's not a bad, you know, riskless uh, choice, especially if there's uncertainty in the equity market. 
Uh, Mike, right on. And uh, if you take a look at bank bonds, I'm talking RBC, TD, uh, um, HSBC, uh, the, the bank bonds short term are paying four and a half to five percent. RBC is at 4.7 for a one year. HSBC is at five percent for a one year. And BMO uh, two year at five and a quarter percent. Uh, Manu Life, by the way, one year four point eight percent. But the point I'm making is investors do have a choice, and even though you are going to be taxed on those yields on that income from the fixed income, whether either the banks or, or either the banks or whoever ever it is, you are going to be taxed at your highest marginal yeah. rate. And that's going to be in BC if you live 52.5%. Yeah, I mean, your, your point's well taken. You, you don't look at before-tax returns on anything you're doing. You look at after-tax returns. But it still provides competition. I've been interested in the high-quality preferred shares because you get the dividend tax credit that makes them more attractive. But you've got track records. Let's go to the companies you just mentioned, some of the banks. You know, I, I look at the Royal Banks, never missed a dividend. Good times, bad times, in between times, you name it. And preferreds, of course, get paid before common shares do. So again, I think preferred shares are offering some competition right now for your general uh, dollar. Absolutely. And Mike, you know, if you take a look at uh, some of these, I mean, the banks don't fail. The banks are solid. The banks have gone through this and worse than this. But the banks are guaranteed because if perchance they can't make good, and I say perchance, it's a very, very, very remote. You end up with equity in the bank. You don't go and just lose your money. So um, you can take to the bank that you can do that. It's just that what do you want to do with the equity market? Do you want still to be exposed to the equity market? Do you want to sell some of what you got in the equity market? But this brings some of the dividend paying stocks, the way dividends have increased, you might along with looking at the banks, take a look at some of these dividend-paying stocks. And one that I looked at is TransCanada Pipe. Uh, it's uh, energy, it's got growth potential, and it's paying a 6% dividend. And then when you take the tax consequences of that, different from earning interest, where, as I say, you live in BC, you're going to pay 52.5% tax, it's uh, really equivalent of an 8% bank bond instead of the 4, 4.5, or 5%. So what I'm saying is there are choices out there. Yeah, and that's that's a result of these interest rate changes. So uh, it was a non-competitive market. So no wonder equities uh, flourished in a marketplace where there wasn't much else going on. You know, I wasn't going to accept super low rates, especially even with inflation, even well before it started to move aggressively. I'm still getting only half a percent in a savings account and inflation may only be one and a half. That means I'm still losing money. So I, I think your point's well taken and one that, you know, as usual, and I know I say this all the time, that's your signal for people because everyone's got individual circumstances to go chat with your financial advisor. Things have changed. It might provide some opportunity and certainly a healthy dividend yield gives a lot of downside protection to any stock as opposed to a stock that's maybe, and that's what we've seen, more aggressive growth and you do great in good times, not so well in bad times because they don't have a dividend to sort of compensate. But yeah, I, I think that's where I go with this, Mike, is it's just another bell ringing that, you know what, go talk to your financial advisor.
do because there are choices out there and i i guess what the catalyst on this for me was mike is i'm hearing people i talk to people friends and people that barely know me and they said you see the stock market my god my portfolio and my thoughts always are and i don't tell people what to do there are choices out there so if the equity market isn't treating you right and you need some income or you need to take a second look go look there are other alternatives well, I'm sure no Money Talks listeners vulnerable because we've been given that advice to <laughs> review the portfolio well before the big decline started. And I'm always on about that. Manage your risk. Victor Dare sings that song with me every week. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Good to have you back. Thanks, Mike. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show the founder, CEO of Vision Opportunity Funds, Jeff Olin. Jeff, I appreciate you finding time for us. Nice to chat with you. Hey, let me ask this uh, right off the bat, because one of the things that always uh, impressed me with the Vision Opportunity Funds is that you've never had a losing calendar year. I mean, the funds have never had that negative yield. And, you know, we're talking about 2013, 15, 2018, 2020, you know, where you look at uh, like the broad markets or you look at the read index, et cetera, both were negative. Uh, here, now talk about a Barbara Walters questions that asked for oversimplification, but how have you managed that? Uh, so there's probably three or four big picture answers to unpack. The first is, as you may recall, Mike, our strategy involves looking at the underlying net asset value of the real estate. What is that real estate worth? in the property market and then comparing it to what is trading at in the stock market. And the core essence of why we exist is to buy real estate cheaper in the property, sorry, in the stock market than one can in the property market. So the first answer is when you're buying it at discount, 60 cents on the dollar, 70 cents on the dollar, now there's a correction. So now it's 70, 80 cents. So it's hard to fall out of bed when you're sleeping on the floor. So that's the first thing. Secondly, our strategy also gives us the flexibility to short securities. So if the fundamentals are negative or deteriorating or valuations are excessive, well, you can't do anything about that in the property market. We could do something about it in the stock market by being able to be short. And that clearly helps in terms of protecting capital. Thirdly, if you look at the differential in performance, between the best performing REIT quartile and the worst performing REIT quartile, over the last 20 years, the average differential is 48%. So this is a sector where active investing seems to matter a lot. So through our process, if we can identify the best performing and the worst performing, you should be able to outperform an index significantly. And lastly, of course, is liquidity. If you own a bunch of real estate, you don't have much liquidity. And the fact that we operate in, a, in the stock market gives us liquidity that when things change, you can move. So, you know, if apartments in San Francisco aren't a good place to be uh, because of a pandemic and work from home or, you know, homelessness, whatever the factor is, and it's good to be in Texas and something happens to, to as a catalyst in that regard, we can move quickly. You can't do that if you own the real estate directly. 
so many things come up for me when you say that, and I want to make sure I don't miss any of them. But let me ask, come back to this rising interest rate environment, obviously with the Fed this week, but also forecasting further. I looked at Goldman Sachs forecasting more increases. What's that like for REITs? What you know in that environment of rising interest rates? I mean, one of the myths in REITs is, uh, you know, it, that it's all about interest rates. I mean, historically, there's been zero positive correlation between interest rates and REIT prices um, because, and we're not here to be bulls for real estate. You know, we're long, short fund. We seek to outperform irrespective of market conditions. But when rates go up, you got to ask yourself, why? If it's a credit crisis, it's brutal for real estate. If it's inflation, it's typically good for real estate. In fact, the last major Fed tightening cycle between June 04 and June 06, the Fed raised rates 17 times from 1.25% to 5.25%. And over that period of time, REITs returned 62%, stocks 16, bonds 6. REITs aren't bonds, Michael. They're dynamic businesses where supply and demand matters like any other industry and business. So you could have... If you pick the right sectors where supply and demand fundamentals are positive, you can get positive net operating income. Take today, industrial real estate, where the in-place rents are about half of market rents. That's number one. Number two, conservative capital structures. Today, the interest coverage ratios in in REITs are over four to one. Interest expense only represents about 20% of the net operating income. The weighted average term of debt is about seven years fixed rate. Um, and so this is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, you know, the, and, and the other thing is the Fed funds rate might go to four and a quarter, four and a half. This is not our expertise, but that's what the market's saying. But if that happens, we're underwriting a recession. And if you have a recession because the Fed keeps doing this uh, and you got a recession, it's not economically rational, intellectually consistent to say that the 10-year U.S. bond is going to be materially higher than it is right now. And that's what's important to real estate, the 10-year bond, not the Fed funds rate. So we're not particularly worried about rising interest rates other than the recession will impact real estate. It'll hurt the demand side. And that's why in the positioning we have is assuming a recession, investing accordingly. Well, I, I love the distinction you're making, and I, that's why I want to come back to it because I don't want to gloss over. There are a lot of reasons why you'd get inflation, but I love that distinction. Are you getting it because there has been some sort of credit crunch or some problem that way, or is it simply uh, what we're experiencing today? Lots of money flooded into the system. There has been supply chain problems. Uh, so demand was there. And I just think that's a very important distinction that I don't hear often enough. Yeah, I mean, inflation, you know, real estate's a hard asset. It benefits an inflationary environment. The replacement cost value of that real estate goes up. Now, it's not relevant in a market like Calgary office where the vacancy rate is 35%. You're not going to see impact transactions. But in markets where supply and demand is tight and you have the ability, perhaps through short-term leases, to pass through that inflation, it matters a lot. I like, by the way, that you brought up Calgary there for a second in that market. I should make clear that uh, in Vision, you guys look at industrial real estate, commercial, and residential. I, I threw a, a residential at you right away with REITs, but it is important that you guys look at the cr broad cross-section 
of the market. And so let me ask on a big question, how do you see them all? And I know it's general because you've got different geographies, et cetera, but just generally, uh, you know, I guess I'm leaning to this is just as you described. I mean, I think that commercial real estate's got a lot of shakeout to do, or at least some challenges to meet. Indeed. So, you know, where we sit and how we're positioned in anticipation of a recessionary environment is really, you know, we don't have to own the REIT index. We don't own the REIT index. If we don't like a sector, we're not going to be underweight. We're not going to own it or we're going to be short. So the five sectors really we like right now, single family rental homes. These are homes you rent in the Sun Belt, cheaper than apartments. Uh, when home ownership costs have doubled, uh, you know, this is a sector that likely benefits. You're seeing significant rent growth on renewals and relets. We like industrial real estate, which is benefiting from three secular demand factors, specifically e-commerce uh, is a beneficiary, uh, reshoring the return of manufacturing to North America, uh, you know, Intel investing $100 billion outside Columbus, Ohio for new chip plants there. Uh, and the replacement of just-in-time supply chain management, which has been around for 50 years after the Japanese coined the phrase, to just-in-case inventory management. Those are things we didn't have in the last recession. And we watch supply. It's easy to build this up, but supply is pretty much in balance. In fact, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver are probably the three best industrial markets in the planet. The third thing is uh, manufactured housing communities. These are homes that you go and you spend $250,000, say, of your money to buy, and you put it on these REITs land. They charge you land rent. You, the homeowner, pay the realty taxes. You, the homeowner, pay the operating expenses. It's the most pure form of cash flow in the real estate space. The best asset class for 40 years. Institutions didn't get it for 25 years. They got it the last 15. Typically trades a big premium to net asset value. Never had 12 months of declining net operating income. Uh, so we didn't own it, too expensive. Now, in 2022, when REITs sell off 25%, we own it. And the last one is selectively grocery store um, uh, anchored shopping centers, necessity based. I said the last one, one more, niche apartments, we're cautious in apartments globally because of uh, populist regimes and rent controls perking up, but we're invested in Alberta and Texas, the two last places on the planet you're going to see rent controls. Uh, back to another point you were making earlier, sorry. Uh, what we've seen is this steady erosion of purchasing power of dollars, and there's not some direct link between... I mean, we can, as you were alluding to, but it's important because it's, it, it's uh, an understanding that goes against what I think the public narrative is, is real estate goes down in a rising, rent, uh, rising rate environment. Well, you know, I, I, I can't, I'm old, so I remember 1978, uh, 79, 80, where you had these huge rises in interest rates, but spectacular performance on real estate. But I also see that long-term factor um, that we're just eroding the purchasing power. You know, we see it everywhere, whether I'm trying to buy oil or, you know, and I appreciate the commodities have backed off, but I still think that's a reflection. I still think real estate's perceived as one place that you can protect yourself. Yeah, particularly in those property types where you have the opportunity uh, because of the structure leases or tight markets to pass through. So, you know, self-storage, you can pass, you know, change your rents every hour if you want. Apartments, there's turnover once or twice a year. 
single-family rental housing, you can pass it on. Manufactured housing communities increase every year. So, you know, you if you're in office and you got a 10-year lease, you don't have much of a chance to pass on whether things are good or bad. Uh, but those those sectors where you can uh, benefit from uh, charging rents higher or passing through your expenses uh, will be beneficiaries where you have an opportunity to address an inflationary environment. Uh, you know, sorry, I should have mentioned this earlier, but I remember back, uh, you know, uh, I think it was January, February, you were joined us, uh, 221, sorry, first quarter, 221. And I remember you talking about, you know, the central banks, are nuts if they think this stuff is transitory, that this inflation thing that you're dealing with is transitory. And of course, that's played out. Uh, you know, uh, you guys were right. Our central banks were dead wrong. But uh, as you say, it helps prepare you for the environment you're going to be investing in. Yeah, we thought it was ridiculous that they were saying it was transitory. And I'll tell you, we now, again, this is not our expertise, but we tell you now we think the central bank is getting it wrong again. They created this dragon. Uh, now they're trying to slay it, and they're breathing fire. Um, we think that the there's all kinds of signals in the market that inflation that the Fed can control is largely peaked and has declined significantly, and uh, you know they're going to push us into a recession if the market is right and they take the Fed funds rate to four and a half percent. So uh, this is a mistake. Um, they're going too far again. Well, they sure seem determined to do just that. Hey, Jeff, can you give us a couple of examples? I always like the way you can describe, okay, this is something that you guys are interested in or partially own or, or wholly own, uh, but it also helps us understand your thinking. So maybe give us a couple of uh, things that you find very interesting, opportunities, I mean. Yeah, I mean, consistent with the uh, landscape I described, um, you know, on the residential side, we love BSR REIT which is Toronto listed, but all U.S., 90% state of Texas. Again, Texas last place, as I mentioned, there'll be rent controls, great management, great properties, billion-dollar market cap, uh, trading uh, at, we think, a you know, 15 20% discount to net asphalt. So BSR, which is HOM, you can buy that in the Canadian U.S. dollars. We like Tricon Residential. Uh, Tricon is, again, listed in Canada and the United States in the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, but they are a leader in single-family rental homes. I touched on that. Really well managed. Uh, you can buy that at a 33% discount to the net asset value of their properties. Uh, also in residential, I mentioned Alberta. We like Boardwalk, uh, symbol BEI trading at a 25% discount to our view of net asset value, which is $62.50. Alberta, Alberta's doing very well. In fact, you drive around Toronto these days, every four minutes there's a, a commercial on the radio with uh, saying you should move to Alberta to be able to buy a house and affordable living and uh, quality of life. Um, first, Capital Realty. This is the best grocery store anchored shopping center portfolio in our view globally not in canada globally uh, they have about 20 million square feet of income producing properties and 25 million square feet of development it's loblaws safeway metro uh anchored shoppers drug mart a canadian tire uh, stocks around 15 dollars the ifrs valuation is about 25 40 percent discount now this stock the best assets, worst performer, 
over the last five years. Over the last five years, the peers have delivered 35% return, first capital negative 12.6%. Uh, you know, this company is the quality of assets deserve more. Uh, we believe some corporate action is appropriate here. Um, one of, in our view, the biggest responsibility board of directors could have is ensuring that the value of its shares reflect the underlying assets. And if it doesn't, uh, some corporate action is appropriate. And this is an incredible opportunity in our view. Um, and Summit, uh, Summit, we said industrial. Uh, this is a great Canadian name, uh, $3.3 billion dollars. We think net asset value around 24 bucks. Stocks trading at a 27% discount to that net asset value. Storage Vault, uh, great, the only real player in Canada storage. Um, stock is cheap, really good management, not a REIT. So they're not relying on capital markets. They can reinvest their capital. So those are some good names, uh, I think, for your audience. And I think also a wonderful example of the approach you take, and you said it right off the top. Why do you buy and sell or short real estate in the stock market? It's the liquidity, but you often get these discounts. And that's what you, are, you and your team at Vision are trying to identify is significant discount, as you just elaborated to, you know, to what the asset value is. And that, again, protects on the downside. Uh, I also should have said this up front that, I mean, the Vision Alternative Income Fund uh, you know, is available to anyone. You just buy it like clicking and presto, you're there. And uh, you just go to Vision Capital and, and you can get all the details on it. But I just want to make sure people understand you do work for major institutions, but you also have, as I say, for someone, you know, just what I call normal people. If they want exposure in this way, you can do it through the Vision Alternative Income Fund. Uh, and Jeff, as always, uh, by the way, I always have a smile on my face when I talk to you because the expertise is obvious. Uh, they should put you as sort of the poster child uh, of why people invest uh, through uh, companies like yourselves, where you bring a lot of expertise to bear. Like I understand this market well, I still don't have the time, the energy or the expertise to do the detailed work that you people do to evaluate an opportunity in that market space or all of these market space, industrial, commercial and residential. And as usual, I am so much appreciative that you found time for us. Thanks for having me. And uh, if there's any follow up, you know where to find me. Well, there's going to be a lot of follow-up. I'll take you up on that, and you know that, Jeff. <laughs> now you're going to be forced to answer my calls. Uh, Vision Capital, Vision Cap. Uh, great, the Vision Alternative Income Fund. Thanks, Michael. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. And for it, we go to the political drama of the week in the U.S. I'm talking about the arrival of 48 immigrants from Venezuela who, according to the New York Times, had crossed the southwest border without authorization and had turned themselves in to the border officials, many planning to claim asylum. And Martha Vineyard, well, that's home of the rich and fabulous, uh, they were sent from Texas on two flights arranged by Florida Governor Ron DeSantos. Now, keep in mind, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been sending busloads of asylum-seeking migrants to Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago since April. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey has joined Texas in sending busloads of immigrants to northeastern cities, many of the self-declared asylum cities. And also, they sent them to San Francisco, if I recall. 
The choice of Venezuelan immigrants, though, to send to Martha's Vineyard is going to gain attention. Come on. It's part of the shocking, my first shocking stat. 6.1 million people have fled the socialist regime of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro since the mid-2010s. But that's a story for another time. One thing for sure is that DeSanto's publicity stunt worked because it's put the spotlight on the influx of newcomers across the southern border that's overwhelmed some towns in Texas and Arizona. Not surprisingly, I mean, the serious and complex issue of how to handle the massive influx of newcomers, and that includes legal immigrants, asylum seekers, illegals who cross into the country, has now been overshadowed by political tribalism, which was fueled when, I mean, it didn't start then, but it certainly exacerbated when President Trump entered the debate with the proposed building of a wall. Now, political opponents are outraged that Florida governor didn't warn officials in Martha's Vineyard of the incoming influx. So there was no chance to get the necessary services arranged. But others are so critical of the insensitivity of some of the, in quotes, sanctuary cities to the impossible challenge of absorbing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of newcomers. And by the way, the political debate makes no distinction when you look at legal immigrants, illegal migrants, asylum seekers. But the numbers are shocking. In the first 10 months of 221 fiscal year, 94,000 migrants from Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela arrived in the U.S. Same period this year, the number's up by more than 400%, 438,000. And of course, the services to deal with the influx grew nowhere near as fast. Here's a couple of others. Between July 21 and July 22, the department processed 1.079 million migrants were stopped at the southwest border for removal. And of that number, it's clear just 41,206 applied for asylum or other humanitarian protection in the U.S. I mean, these are just staggering numbers. During the same period, the Department of Homeland Security released approximately 853,000 migrants that were stopped at the southwest border into the country at large. Although those, those migrants are call, commonly called asylum seekers, Stats show that fewer than 5% are. This one more. In July, the Border Patrol apprehended 5,856 illegal entrants every day at the southwest border. I mean, the, the estimate is that in the states right now, there's 11.3 million illegals living there. The bottom line. It's like so many other complex issues. A realistic discussion, one that gets beyond emotion and political gamesmanship, is so desperately needed. One that isn't predicated on virtue signaling and the delusion that open borders are doable and an unlimited number of newcomers and asylum seekers can be handled. But sadly, come on, if history is any indication, the problem will have to get worse, impact far more people before that happens. Which, come to think of it, is probably why the governors of Texas, Arizona, and Florida are trying to do that by sending newcomers to northern cities. Well, so much talk about the housing market. Why? Because they're on the front line of changes in interest rates. When we've been chronicling right from the get-go, the end of easy money, well, where was it going to be felt first? Where people borrow. And nobody, I mean, the generality is, I know, but people borrow more money for housing than any other purpose. So no wonder that's where the impact's felt directly. Ozzy Jurek joins me right now, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, I know you caught this, but I think it's kind of interesting. You know, uh, the StatsCan report on just the changes in, in the nature of the market, like the level of home ownership, who owns a home, who doesn't? 
Yeah, no question. I mean, first of all, they made the point that the passing of the national housing strategy in 2019 recognized that housing is a human right. You know, so very, very interesting uh, to, to when we always talk about housing. It's a right that we have is to 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 be housed uh, housed well. And but there are some changes underway. We have had uh, home ownership as much as 69% of us uh, owned our own home or at least had a mortgage on a home. And that's now declined from 2011 to 66.5% in 2021. So the actual ownership is changing and we're moving slightly into a more um, more tenants uh, as a percentage are increasing clearly and the owners are decreasing. Well, I mean, Ozzy, let's come back to that statement, though. I mean, boy, as soon as you said it, and I remember when they did that housing is a human right, uh, the BS meter went crazy. Like, what does that mean? What are they prepared to do about it? Are you going to stop putting a property purchase tax on in some province? Because that further uh, makes it difficult, more difficult for people to own a house. Uh, how about the development fees? I mean, it's just such nonsense. I mean, I, I'm doing some work right now thinking about we've come out of the age of, uh, age of virtue signaling and horse manure. You know, and that one would be right up there for me. It's a human right. Oh, really? How does that translate to action? Sorry. Well, you, uh, no. you pressed my button, and I bet you knew it. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's a fact, right? But many minutes, these are all worthwhile statements. Like Mr. Trudeau says, we have 200 million for rent to own, and then says the province, and we urge the province and the cities to work together and figure out how. You know, I mean, so so what does it mean? There's no real plan. This is what you do to get it. But the point here is that we are much less likely to own when we if, if we are millennials, right? So the age 25 to 29 that home ownership has dropped from 44% to 36%. So that's quite a quite a change in a 10-year period. And also, it's clearly that the newer bills are all rentals of the housing that was built in the last uh, five years. So that's, that's a huge change. Our share of condominium uh, living uh, construction is now 15% up from 12, 13%. So there are a lot of statistics there. And for those of us that are numbers-oriented, it will be great uh, thing to go to StatScan and, and look at the survey it just came out last week. But some of the things are, are surprising. For instance, I thought that the home ownership we ranked 23rd highest among the countries in the OECD. The United States uh, was about 65.5, so we're, we're slightly ahead of them at 66.5. But guess what? Mexico is at 69%. What, what country's got the most level or percentage of home ownership? It's it's seven it's seventy one percent, but um, right now the United Kingdom is sixty nine point six. The Fra France is lower than mm -hmm. us at sixty one, but it's it's just around the seventy percent mark. So we're right up there, but we're not as high as we were. We were the highest we ever were with sixty nine percent in two thousand eleven. Uh, let me throw another statistic that's got lots of implications. So ten million households in Canada own their own home. So what they have to appreciate is the government, and, and then you'd have to add on how many have uh, stocks or RRSPs and other pensions, that kind of stuff, because those are the two main areas that have been nailed by higher interest rates. So the government's got a policy in place that literally impacts negatively the net worth of 10 million Canadians who own homes or the households who own homes. Plus, you have to add on that percentage. Yeah, if they, they probably overlap to a great extent, but still add on, you know, people who've got RSPs because stocks are down, bonds are down. So it's, it's just interesting. Uh, I always make this point because, again, I look at the media. I'm not seeing it. Is that 
the, one of the reasons for the rise in interest rates is to discourage people from buying. They do that by making them feel poor or de facto make them poor. And I'm just surprised how many Canadians that impacts, like 10 million households. Well, and that's the, the, the funny thing is 10 million sounds a lot and it's higher, but as a percentage of people growth, we actually over almost 3% fewer homes of uh, people owe their own home. We were 69%, we're now around 66%. So even that 10 million is up from where it was. We are also as a population uh, are higher than we were. Yeah, still two-thirds of Canadians getting impacted directly that way. But, I, you know, the other thing, we don't make uh, connections between, uh, you know, costs of building a new house, discouraging them by having higher interest rates, maybe rent, uh, rent ceilings, that kind of stuff. And, and you're seeing it in the rents. I mean, one of the things that I think is a saving grace for real estate is that the, you can still get, uh, with the rental prices going up, you know, it's still possible to make a, a sound return. Uh, by owning a property and renting it out. And so that will prevent, uh, you know, we won't have too big a decline, or at least that's one of the variables that would mitigate a big decline because then the the percentage that you'll make, your investment returns would be much higher. Well, and, and that's a fact. The, the other thing, though, is too that as a millennial, perhaps some of them are just deciding, you know what, I don't want to tie myself up with a mortgage. I want to have the the goods of life, and I'm going to be a renter. And there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with being a renter, absolutely nothing. And when you look at renter households, they grew faster than Kelowna. Imagine up 54% in Nanaimo, up 40%. And in Ontario, whether it's Barrie or Oshawa or Cambridge or Waterloo, they're all over 45 to 47% households in terms of growing faster on a rental side than on an owner side. Uh, the other thing, uh, just change topics now, change gears, as uh, Long-term housing has been a great bet because of the devaluation of currencies at the very least, the purchasing power of currencies. Uh, I see no indication that's going to stop. But at the same time, if it's a short term, that can cause a lot of problems. And you were telling me off air about an interesting situation where, hey, it all looks great until it doesn't. <laughs> well, yes, it's uh, it's uh, if you're referring to the, the situation in the United States, uh, the flipper markets, uh, we, we, we've got to realize that some of the biggest corporations in the United States, Wall Street itself, BlackRock, Zillow, Open Door Technologies, and all of them, they went into the market last year and they started buying houses. Well, they're now losing their shirt. And at the Open Door Technologies alone reported a $175 million loss. And in fact, 42% of all the transactions in August lost money in Los Angeles and Phoenix as much as 76% of their transaction lost money. And Mike, that means to me as an investor, go down there where they're selling. They're selling at huge losses. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating market and one that is obviously, uh, you know, as they say on the forefront, who gets impacted first by rising interest rates? Well, it certainly looks like it's been in the housing industry, both developer side, the buyer side, every aspect of it. And Ozzy Jurek's there to chronicle it for us. And you can go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Look forward to his uh, weekly missive on what's going on. You can register there, get it. It's free, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, thanks for taking the time. And thanks for having me, Mike. And I do remember, you know, we were talking about, I don't think you cook, but I always cook with wine. And sometimes I even add it to the food. <laughs> yeah, actually, we could do a whole program on my cooking lack of expertise. But my, uh, you know, I get people begging me, don't cook. That's what the bottom line is that I get them begging not cook. You know, how can you blow just a can of SpaghettiOs? Well, I found my way. Ozzy, thanks for taking the time. Good weekend to you. And the same to you.
It's been amazing several months here, and uh, we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, as we've chronicled, and I think accurately right from the get-go, you're looking at a massive change in the environment we're investing in uh, from you know, the end of cheap money, the end of cheap energy, and the profound implications for that social, uh, socially, politically, and of course, economically and financially. Victor Dare joins me now live from the trading desk. Vic, I want to start, of course, uh, you know, I, I mentioned a bit of this with Mike Levy earlier, but you know, the three-quarter percent rate hike by the Federal Reserve. But I'm also looking back to a statement by Jerome Powell made in June that says, hey, three quarter percent rate hikes are really unusual. I don't expect to see too many more of them. And now we've had three in a row. Right. Well, you know, I think the the message that he and the Fed generally are trying to deliver is that uh, they're on a mission. They want to get inflation down and damn the consequences. And of course, damn the consequences is the part that everybody worries about. I mean, just just how far are they willing to push things in their desire to get interest, uh, I should say, inflation down? And it's not just the Fed. I mean, this week, Mike, I I lose count here, but I know we had at least 10 central banks around the world jack up interest rates. So, you know, it's going on all over and it's having ramifications, certainly in stock markets, currency markets and the credit markets. Yeah, what's so uh, interesting about this period uh, is that when you look at Great Britain sort of uh, raising their rates this week, well, they're doing it in face of a recession. Obviously, so that's the case of, uh, you know, the European Union refresh, uh, recessionary uh, pressures. In the U.S., it's a slowing market. We'll see how far that goes. But that's highly unusual. I mean, you don't raise rates. Uh, the, the theory is you lower rates when the economy is slowing, not raise them. Well, the, the forward curve is showing that the Fed, the, the market expects the Fed to raise rates into the first quarter of next year. And then because they've caused a recession, you know, they will start to lower rates, but not by nearly as much as they have raised them. And speaking of how much they've raised rates, this is the steepest increase in interest rates like ever. Well, certainly since Volcker, uh, as the, the, the central bank in the United States has really driven interest rates higher. And you know, I think it's a fair question to say, you know, with this going on and the stress that it's causing in the market, along with the stress of higher energy, as you just mentioned, geopolitical stress. I mean, earlier in the week, we had Putin deliver a speech that sounded ominous. You know, so we got a lot of stress in the market. And over the past couple of years, certainly, we've had people strap on a lot of leverage, take on some risk. And you just think that somewhere is out there, Somebody's getting their feet held on the fire and they're going to yell uncle. Well, a couple of things about that. As you saw, I'm sure you did earlier in the week, Goldman Sachs has now after the Federal Reserve announced their numbers. They say, now we think you're going to get a lot higher. You're going to get another three quarter percent move in November, a half percent move in December, quarter into February of next year. I mean, their prognostication, them and so many others is so much higher than it was just say a month or two months ago. And again, into, uh, but it impacts so many different things. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, the US dollar, as you were chronicling all the way up, you know what, 20 year high, the US dollar index, a 20 year high, more so against the pound, more so against the yen, but a 20 year high. And now we're going to have even a bigger interest rate differential. Yeah, the US dollar did hit a 20, fresh 20 year high this week. Uh, the, the Japanese like finally stepped up and intervened in the market, selling US dollars, buying yen with the yen at the lowest level it's been at in 24 years. That's the first time in 24 years that they've intervened. 
But, you know, it's not just a currency. It's on the other side of the world. I mean, the Canadian dollar here is down three and a half cents in the last uh, eight or nine days, that sort of thing. We're at about a 26-month low, I think, in the Canadian dollar. You know, it's the U.S. dollar is going up against a lot of things. And where I think some of the stress may cause a breakage is in the emerging markets. You know, you had Martin Muir, uh, I should say Martin Armstrong, Armstrong on last week. And he was talking about how the stress starts to show up first in the periphery markets, you know, the Argentinas of the world, that sort of thing. Well, here's India. Their currency is down uh, about 10 percent so far uh, from last year's highs. South Africa, I think we're down about 18 percent. So there's there's stress out there with the U.S. dollar going higher and it's going higher largely because American interest rates are surging relative to other places. I had a couple of comments that uh, I'm alarmist and I'm saying, well, do you think it's alarmist that people literally are going to starve, that we have record energy prices that are really going to cause hardship? Uh, you know, you have manufacturing shutting down in Germany, uh, that the high U.S. dollar, which we've been correct on all the way up, all because of safety. You know, it's money flows into the U.S., as you say, for safety and opportunity. Uh, you know, that list goes on. And I look at that emerging market. I think this is a bigger problem. It's not on people's radar. The amount of money that was borrowed by emerging markets in U.S. dollar terms, strike one. And that's a big strike because now, of course, in local currency terms, it costs them a lot more to have borrowed and have the, ba uh, the bond mature. I just don't see them getting paid back. But here's the other one is uh, I'd go so far as to say if you're considering an exotic vacation, don't go anywhere that has to import their energy. Because this phenomena you're talking about, Vic, high, uh, high U.S. dollar and, of course, oil uh, measured in U.S. dollar terms. So it's gone up vis-a-vis -vis the local currency. I, I think the stress in this is going to be unbelievable. So as I say, I've taken it to such an extreme, I'd say, don't go visiting a country that imports oil. Well, the stress that's showing up, you know, we've talked here a few times in the past couple of months about what I call the 60-40 uh, stock bond portfolio which is a backbone, or at least a substantial part, of a lot of pension funds. Well, the Bloomberg 6040 stock bond index is down 20% this year. Now, 20%, okay, you say you can live, live with that. But, you know, the, the reason there is such a thing as a 6040 stock bond portfolio is that if one side is losing, the other side's probably making money. So you kind of even out. That's the whole point of it. Well, you know, this decrease of 20% is the biggest decrease we've seen in, I don't know, 20 years. Certainly, it's bigger than we saw in the COVID panic uh, March of, of two years ago. Mike, you were saying about being alarmist. I mean, the, it's a different world here, and there's stress here. And when you get this kind of stress, you just wonder, okay, where's the next shoe going to drop? I think that's the question. And it's funny, I just laugh at myself because I'm afraid people are going to wait till it impacts them more directly than it already is. I mean, they've seen all sorts of things hit them, whether it's energy prices. I mean, back out in Vancouver, you had still, you had $2 a liter gasoline this week. Uh, you know, that's just one eye. Wait, wait, wait to try heating oil, diesel, that kind of stuff. You've seen the interest rates. You've seen uh, food prices. Uh, the August number came out this week, 10.8% grocery store food prices. That is crushing. My scenario is, or my thesis is, that's going to keep moving up the income chain. We knew it was going to hit the vulnerable, or for those people who cared, knew that. Oh, no, we're getting up in the middle class now. People renewing their mortgage from 2017, where they got maybe 2.8%, now coming back in at a great rate of 44 
that's a huge change. I just think all of this, uh, I mean, I'm agreeing. I think it is sounding alarmist, but it's for good reason. Mike, I'm glad you bring that up. I've been noting in my blog for the past couple of months anyway, I guess, that I don't think we're going to see inflation fall dramatically back like to the 2% level. And one of the reasons for that is all of those people that you talk about that are being impacted by higher costs or prices on goods and services are going to try to get their wages up. You know, if they're in a position where they can strike, they're going to strike. If they have to negotiate some other way, but it's going to be a, a push from wages as these people try to catch up from being left behind, let's say, by income inequality and by rising prices on goods and services. A, a couple of things before you go, Vic. I want to just get a quick word on gold. Now, I've been holding some gold because I thought it was a long-term hedge against currency problems. I still maintain that. I, didn't, I wasn't ever ever say that it was an inflationary hedge. Why? Because we have too many historical instances where it's not proven to be that. We're in one right now. But it is certainly impacted by interest rates and inflation, the comparison, what's called real interest rates, inflation versus, uh, or rather interest rates minus the rate of inflation. So on that score, it's not, if you only looked at that one variable, it's not a particularly good time for gold. Yeah, gold has been a disappointment this year. I mean, I track the holdings in the major gold ETFs, and basically people aren't interested in gold. They've been selling those things. But here uh, this week with the all the activity with interest rates going higher, the volatility in the currency market, gold uh, hit a 30-month low around, call it $1,650, that sort of thing. But it's kind of steady to better here to going into the end of the week despite the U.S. dollar at a 20-year high and despite real interest rates, which has just jumped higher here the past month or two. So interesting, I think gold is maybe sniffing out uh, the stress in the market and people are, no, nobody wants to get short gold here, I guess, on the, at least speculators, I think is, is the takeaway. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. It reminds me of Howard Cosell, who used to say, it's controversial. You know the story, though. Prime Minister Trudeau broke the solemnity of the 10-day mourning period for Queen Elizabeth on the Saturday night before the Monday funeral by singing in the lobby of the upscale Corinthia Hotel. Upscale? You bet it is. They've got suites for $6,227 per night. That's a regular night. I got to say, though, when I saw the uh, Daily Mail's headline, in quotes, drunk Canadian PM Trudeau was slammed as tone-deaf embarrassment for singing Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody at London Hotel before Elizabeth II's state funeral. I didn't actually believe it. My first response was, come on, did he really? I quickly checked to see if it was fake news. Because come on, it took place in a public setting during the official 10-day mourning period for literally the most popular monarch of all time. I mean, come on, it's a for, for so many people, it was a deeply emotional period. I mean, numbers like $2 billion are estimated to have caught at least some part of the funeral. And that's a key point, by the way. Any other time, it could be more easily passed off. But this was during the official mourning period. In public, an over-the-top karaoke. It showed abysmal judgment. You know, it sort of reminded me of uh, the, the Prime Minister, after all the big fuss about the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, chose to surf in Tofino. I mean, it's one of those, what was he thinking? Now, I know supporters don't like the criticism, but come on, he does it to himself. 
But I want to make it clear, that's not the Goofy Award. No. I appreciate the event makes for wonderful political fodder. Predictable sides taking, uh, taken. You know, conservatives absolutely appalled. Liberals asking for a copy of the upcoming album. While the NDP, oh yeah, says nothing. After all, they've got a confidence and supply agreement. But here's the goofy. It goes to some members of the Canadian press who just decided to provide a mountain of ammunition for those people who make a direct link between the government's $600 million plus media bailout fund and coverage of the Liberal government. Most appalling were mainstream outlets like CTV, CP24, Toronto Star. They were literally regurgitating the government's damage control that this was a tribute to Queen Elizabeth. No, they didn't offer one iota of supporting evidence. They just made it up. Now, I'm not confusing it with people like the CBC panelist Althea Raj or Toronto Sun columnist Joe Warmington, who think the whole thing is no big deal. Now, maybe they could be accused of insensitivity to those mourning the death of the Queen, including the royal family, but at least they didn't make up the same lame story. So again, I'm not critical of that. They might want to consider, by the way, that this wasn't all about them, about how they feel. Millions were deeply mourning the loss. And their response to the Prime Minister's impromptu sing-song was not so casual. And consider that in the aftermath, the Prime Minister was actually booed outside of Canada House. But there's nothing to say that members of the media or anyone else should care about how the leader of Canada is perceived internationally. I could go on. But as I said, this caliber of coverage deserves the goofy. It pushes the government's damage, that they push the government's damage control. It doesn't do anything to dispel the perception that media coverage is influenced by the tens of millions of dollars handed to them by the government. But here's the thing, the entire media gets painted with the same brush. There's such this overall, and I'd accuse myself on occasion of this, of the so-called mainstream media. Not everyone did that, but they do that with, I, I just think, startling insensitivity to that challenge. The uh, Daily Mail called the Prime Minister's action tone deaf. Well, I'm going to use the same adjectives to describe some of the media coverage. Now, of course, they'll disagree, but the polls suggest, you know what, I've got this one right. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. Uh, just a quick reminder, this coming week, uh, September 29th, I'm going to be at the Stan Hagen Theatre. Uh, I'm going to be doing it thanks to the people at Mindset Wealth who've organized it for me and very kind of them to say, anybody who comes, you just make a donation to Special Olympics. You know, that's music to my ears. And I do appreciate the people at Mindset Wealth for doing that. But, you know, anybody, if you're in the Courtney Comox area, hey, if you're in Nanaimo, come on up. Uh, I'm only going to speak for about six hours. Okay, no, I'm not. But it will be good. I, I think it's uh, 6.30, actually. Make sure you're there at the Stan Hagen Theatre uh, in Courtney, of course. But make a point to coming out. That's, uh, again, September 29th. Uh, it's going to be great. I, well, I'm saying that. I guess it's me. I better be great. Uh, thanks to Mindset Wealth. Just uh, come on over and uh, have a look. And let's see what we got. Hey, another thing is this is... We really appreciate when I get told that, hey, I've told my friends about Money Talks. I've told family members about Money Talks. I just want you to know that's sincerely appreciated. There, I, I just Every week I come back to this. There is so much happening that's not being covered. I mean, it's amazing to me to see the protests in Europe not getting huge coverage here. I mean, there were uh, so many individual stories uh, looking at Naples, uh, you know, in Italy where they were burning their energy bills, uh, looking in Germany where it seems like every day there was a different protest. Uh, the list is a big one. And this is before the winter's taken hold. That's just one example. So again, I just encourage you to go to Money Talks Tweets. 
Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook and join us at mikesmoneytalks.ca. As I say, though, I appreciate you telling all your friends about it. I hope you go out and have a terrific week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.